0: Open up the Word this morning. We're going to be in the book of Romans, Romans chapter four. This we're going to be uh, taking a brief deviation from our normal study through the Gospel of Mark to examine this text in the book of Romans, as it deals directly with the topic of the resurrection and what that means for us. One of the difficult things about picking up a passage like this, though, is where I'm picking it up in the, towards the latter portion of Romans chapter 4, and the result of that is I'm, we're in midstream of Paul's multi-chapter arguments about the righteousness of God and how it is that we are saved. So I will attempt to summarize what Paul has been saying up to this point, but just know that it's going to be a gross uh, uh, oversimplification for the sake of time here today. But it is necessary for us to catch the the general drift and the flow of Paul's argument as we consider the text that it will be before us this morning. In chapter 1, Paul has demonstrated the the nature of our sinful condition. Humanity naturally suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He holds it down. He seeks to replace the truth with a lie because of his unrighteousness. And we talked about that even in our, our apologetics Sunday school class. Uh, we, we spent some time going through Romans chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul makes this, a powerful argument, a powerful demonstration that, yes, Gentiles are guilty before God because of their sinful condition, but so are the Jews. The Jews are guilty before God because God judges with, without partiality. And there's a question that gets raised, well, then what's, you know, is there any benefit to being a Jew? And on one hand, Paul says, well, certainly they have the advantage. God has given them direct communication, direct revelation through the law and the prophets. They have the word of God. But on the other hand, they are no better off because everyone. Both Jew and Gentile alike are under sin, and, and while they have the revelation of God, what that revelation reveals for them, being under the law, reveals all the more their sinful condition. So this is punctuated with the, with the striking list of quotations that we find in chapter 3. But now the righteousness, oh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, that's uh, not yet. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, as as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul lays this out as he says, that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. That is the state of humanity. It's heavy. It's dire. But then comes the good news. The good news of the gospel. Despite our sinful condition, despite the reality that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there is forgiveness available to us and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we find the words in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But then the question becomes, wait a second, Paul. If this is how righteousness comes, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ, well, then what about the law? Are you overthrowing the whole law? How can the Gentiles be justified if they aren't following the law? Paul answers, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that takes us into chapter 4 where Paul is going to use the precedent and the example of Abraham to demonstrate that salvation has always been by faith in the revelation and the promises of God. There's never been a time when that has not been true. And so in the first portion of Romans chapter 4, we see uh, this, this explanation by Paul. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. As we consider Paul's argument and the the importance of the example of Abraham in the midst of this argument. I don't know if you guys remember in the Gospels when Jesus is interacting with some of the Pharisees and, and they make this statement. Like, oh, we have Abraham as our father. And they're just, they take great pride in that reality that they are physical descendants of Abraham. And they're, in the context, they were using that as a slight against Jesus, saying, we know who our father is. And Jesus, you don't even know who your dad is. It's kind of a slight that way. And they took great pride in this reality. No, we are offspring of Abraham. The whole Israelite nation, they were, they were circumcised and they took great pride in that because it was a sign that they were connected to Abraham. So there's that children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. A few years back, I was listening uh, to the kids sing that song, and I just said, "No, no, wait a second now, let me think about this. We, as Gentiles, we're not literal sons of Abraham, and that song makes us out to be spiritual Israel, and since I don't believe in replacement theology, I started teaching my kids alternate lyrics to that song. I said, no, no. Many sons had father Abraham, I am blessed through him, and so are you. Ah, because that's what the scripture says. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, that's keeping with the Abrahamic covenant. However, as I was reading this passage from Romans chapter 4, I realized that my zeal to avoid l- the legitimate error of replacement theology, uh, that's, that's a legitimate error, might have been misplaced when it came to the context of that song. Look at what the text says in verse chapter, Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul is saying that, yes, the Jews who are circumcised, they're physical descendants of Abraham, but they can be spiritual descendants as well if they walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had. And that the Gentiles, thus uh, us who have not been circumcised, he becomes the father of all who believe. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So Abraham is legitimately the spiritual father of all who believe. And that is a completely separate discussion from the whole issue of replacement theology. He is the spiritual father of both the uncircumcised Gentiles and those who believe in Jesus. And he is the father of the Jews who follow after Abraham in the same kind of faith that Abraham had. And that brings us up to the passage that we're going to examine today, verses 13 and following. So all of that was all, you know, background leading up, the argument leading up to this moment as we're about to study this passage this morning. There's a little bit, one more piece of background information that I want us to give us. Because in our text, there's going to be a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion about the promise of God to Abraham. What was that promise? I'm going to take us to Genesis chapter 15 where we're going to see this promise that was given. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and, no, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, the number of the stars, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring. We kind of live in the city. So we look outside and we look up and we see a few stars. I don't know how many of you have ever been out in the countryside where there is no light pollution at all? On a clear night. And you look up and see the countless host of stars. Are you raising your hand? you okay. At least raising her hand. Yes. It's innumerable, right? Beholding the glory of God in the heavens. The this number of stars. So that is the picture of what Abraham would have seen. And verse six says, "And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness." So remember, in the flow of Paul's argument, as he demonstrates that both Jews and Gentiles are in we're in the same sinking boat together when it comes to personal salvation, because we're both dead in our sins. And yet, Abraham, he received a promise. Abraham received a promise. The Jews believe that they are heirs to that promise through their bloodline. And Paul says, not so fast. You can be an heir to that promise, but not through your bloodline. Not through keeping the law. How then is that promise to be fulfilled? And I guess the other question that could be asked is what does this have to do with resurrection Sunday? <laughs> well, as we're going to see the promise to Abraham is ultimately fulfilled and confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in order to get there, we need to see the rest of Paul's argument. So let's let's pick things up. Let's see the five things about the promise to Abraham that that gives him this hope, that gives him this promise that we have. Five things about the promise to Abraham. And how that relates to us today. First, the promise to Abraham could not be fulfilled through the law. The promise to Abraham could not be fulfilled through the law. Let's read verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Paul begins and he begins by explaining that it is impossible for the promise to be fulfilled through keeping the law. It's impossible, it cannot happen. Why? Why could that promise not be fulfilled through keeping the law? Well, Paul could have said that the law was given after the promise, and so it's not in conjunction with the promise. But he doesn't say that, at least not here. He could have said that, hey, we're unable to keep the law. The promise couldn't be fulfilled the law because we are incapable of keeping it. He could have said that, but he doesn't, at least not here. He could have said that the law was never intended to be a means of salvation, but he doesn't say that either, at least, again, not here. He touches all those things in other places, but not here. He doesn't say any of that. Here, his argument is much more basic. And if we were to look back in verse 4, he says something that that ties in with the concept that he says here. Back in in, in verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If the promise was achieved through law-keeping, it would not be a promise, but rather earned wages, earned righteousness. If those who strive to keep the law were heirs to the promise, Paul says, then faith is worthless. He says it's void. There's, there's, there's no substance to it. It, it. It's empty. There's no point to faith whatsoever. If you give a promise to someone and says, this is what I'm going to do for you, and then this person comes along and says, okay, well, let me earn that, it defeats the whole point of the promise in the first place. It renders the promise void. Why? Why? Why does it render the promise void? It's because God didn't make this aspect of his promise to Abraham a conditional promise. Now, there are conditional promises. If you do this, then I will do that, right? Those are, that's a conditional promise. Those exist. God didn't make this as a conditional promise. This was an unconditional promise. And as such, it is fulfilled through faith and not through keeping the law. It is impossible for the promise to be fulfilled through keeping the law since it was an unconditional promise in the first place. Saying that I want to earn this unconditional promise through law keeping invalidates the very essence of the promise in the first place. The promise could not be fulfilled through the law therefore the promise to Abraham could only be fulfilled through faith, verse 16. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring, not only to the to, not only to the inherent of to, oh, my eyes are cross for a second, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one, who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Paul says the promised must defend must depend on faith. God gave the promise to Abraham, and he believed. And that same principle carries on from Abraham down to all his offspring, both physical and spiritual offspring. If the physical descendants want the blessings of Abraham, it's not the law that they need, but they need to pursue faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I love how it says here that the promise rests on grace. Literally, it could say it is a promise in accordance with grace, in according to grace. The promise is not based on, it is not in accordance with law-keeping, but rather it is based upon the grace of God. And it is because of that, it is a promise that can be guaranteed. A promise that can be guaranteed. When asked about the possibility of a believer's losing their salvation... Pastor John MacArthur once commented, you know, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it was up to you, if that was something that could happen, you it would absolutely happen. If salvation depended upon me, if it depended on you working to maintain your salvation, me working to maintain my salvation, if we had to keep the entirety of the law of Moses, we would certainly fail. We would certainly fall and there is no guarantee of salvation in such a system. No guarantee whatsoever. Brothers and sisters, this is what makes Christianity such an utterly unique religion from the rest of the religions of the world. Not long ago I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a missionary who's who works with Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. He, he evangelizes amongst the Mormons and as we were having this conversation, he was explaining some of the LDS theology and how they maintain such high levels of expectations of perfection that you must strive for perfection and if you do not, you are falling short and it is all dependent upon you. You have to keep all the commands of the church. When I heard the explanation, I commented to him how this it just sounds so soul-crushing could you ever hope to do that? How could you ever hope to achieve everything that they expect you to achieve? How could anyone ever hope to live up to that? Of course they can't. right? And this ends up being a pretty powerful way to, if you're having a conversation with someone of the LDS faith that, to challenge them. How how can you be sure that you're doing enough? They can't be sure. This can be a powerful way to challenge them in their faith that there is a way that you can be sure same is true for Roman Catholicism or Jehovah's Witness or Islam or any other religion. If it's all based on you and your performance, there is no guarantee. There's only just, well, I hope I've done enough. No guarantee. You just have to say, well, good luck, pal, you're going to need it. That's all there is left to say. But if it comes by faith, If it's in accordance with grace, then the promise can be guaranteed. If it isn't dependent upon our working but upon God's, then the promise can be guaranteed. Now some might object. Some might say, well, the content of the promise, well, that just seems impossible. How is it? How is it possible for his descendants to be as numerous as the stars? How is that even a thing that could come about? How big is your God? Just how big is your God? Because the promise to Abraham is possible because God is a God who does the impossible. Look at verses 17 and following. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God gives life to the dead. God calls into existence things that do not exist. We have the ability to mold and fashion things and, and to create art and to create structures and to put pieces of machinery together. But we are all using existing materials to bring that about to make that happen. God brings things into existence that have never existed. God does the impossible. I can't help but think of Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones, where God speaks to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, can these dry bones live? From a human perspective, the answer is no, right? They're bones. They're dead. But God does the impossible. God makes those dry bones live. He, he raises them up and, and puts flesh upon them and breathes life into them. So Abraham, here in the context of this passage, Abraham, he was facing an impossible situation, right? I I, I just I get a little bit of a kick out of how it says here. He was as good as dead, right? I, there's, there's no life left in him. He was He was beyond the years. He wasn't dead yet, but he might as well have been for the purposes of procreation. And if that wasn't enough... Sarah, his wife, was also old and barren. Now, the ESV here does us a little bit of an injustice with how it translates when it says, considering the barrenness of her womb, literally, the word is necrosis. Abraham, it says, was as good as dead, necro, necro. Sarah's womb is also dead. It's the same word group. Abraham was as good as dead, and when he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, even so, he did not waver in his faith. Why? Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised, that the God who was big enough to offer the promise was big enough to accomplish it, despite of whatever human limitations might have been before Him. Our God is the God who does the impossible. How was it that Sarah could have a son? God does the impossible. How is it that Abraham would have so many descendants? It is God who does the impossible. How is it that sinners, enemies of God, who fall short of His glory, who blaspheme God, suppress and replace the truth of God for a lie. How is it that sinners can be justified? God does the impossible. He does the impossible. And He does it for those who have faith in His promises. And so we see that the promise to Abraham does not only have relevance for Abraham in his day, but it has relevance for us today. Verse 22, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But The text says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us Who believe in him who raised Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. See, God has made a promise that all who would trust in Jesus Christ would be saved. And just like God would fulfill his promise to Abraham through the faith that Abraham had, so too today, God's promise is fulfilled in us who believe in. And have faith in Jesus Christ. The phrase it was counted to him. It says it was written for our sake. For our benefit. That we would see that, that it is not about our doing. It is not our actions. It is not about our law keeping that saves us. But it is about what God has already done. So the concept of credit here is. It, was counted, it says it was counted as Righteousness. It will be counted to us who believe, who raised in Him, who raised Him from the dead. Concept of credit applied is, it's it's a financial terminology. There are several passages throughout Scripture that that speak of the transaction that occurred using this kind of language. Jesus took our sin, right, and up on the cross, He says, "It is finished." That phrase, it is finished, is often used, it's often an accounting term to speak of a debt that's paid in full. Jesus gives us his righteousness, and faith is the vehicle through which that transaction occurs. Our sin is accredited to him. He endures the wrath of God on the cross for us. And his righteousness is counted to us through Simply, simply amazing. That righteousness would be counted to us through faith because of what occurred on that cross. And so finally, as we consider the last verse in this chapter, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled and confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 25 Referring to Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Of course, through faith in Jesus Christ, that is through him that we have life. It is through him we receive the righteousness of God. It's accredited to us through faith. And, and as such, we become the spiritual offspring of Abraham, who believe in like manner that Abraham believed. And so the promise to Abraham is fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then for us here today, the promise is fulfilled and confirmed to us that we will have new life is confirmed through the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> A couple of notes of grammar, which I know is not always the most exciting thing, but it's important for us. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Right, the word "for" in the ESV there is a preposition. The meaning of this verse and how those prepositions are interpreted is a little bit debated, and I'm going to share with you how my understanding of this. He was delivered up for our trespasses. That that part's easy. It's not that part's not debated much. All right, we could translate the word "for" as because. In fact. Most other modern translations translate it as because. So if you open up the New King James, the NASB, uh, I believe even the NIV, um, it says because. Because of our trespass. He was delivered up because of our sins. It was because of our sin that Jesus had to die, right? Simple enough. The struggle is what to do with that last portion of the verse. He was raised for our justification. Well, that word for for is the exact same preposition as the previous word for. So there's debates. Is this, how should we understood, understand this? Some interpreters think that the because is an impossible understanding here because it would make the resurrection dependent upon our justification. That, that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead unless we had been justified. And so they were translated as with a view to our justification, as though it's, it's almost like saying the resurrection secures the justification. So he was raised with a view towards, with, a, with, a under, with uh, moving towards our justification. <coughs> the problem with that understanding is, is just simply a grammatical thing. Uh, if we are to take the, that same word and have assigned two different meanings in such a close context, literally within the same sentence, without some contextual clue that Paul is meaning two different meanings of the same word, when he had different words available to him that could have communicated the difference, it's difficult to see how, why Paul would write it in that way. So I do believe it is best to be translated as just, again, most other modern translations render it. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So there's a causal idea there. Now, if it is causal, what does that mean for us? And this is where all of this begins to come home for us as we consider the resurrection of Christ, and the implications of the resurrections for us in this text, the answer is simply this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he secured our salvation. The price had been paid. There's nothing more to do. All that remains for us is simply to trust in him, and when we trust, we are justified. And and if we're to skip ahead in the very next chapter, the very next verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So Jesus secures for us our justification in his death, but then in order to prove that the payment had been accepted by God, that, that the justification did indeed happen, that the promise had been fulfilled, Jesus rises again. He does not stay dead. He does not stay in the grave. But he is raised again because we have been justified. Proof positive that that is true. Jesus lives. Resurrection is the proof that the payment has been accepted by God. Confirmed that the promise holds true. That the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. And that the promise to us will be kept that you have eternal life forever because of what Christ did proven secured demonstrated and confirmed through the resurrection of Christ God does the impossible as he raises Christ from the dead God does the impossible when he saves the wretched sinners like you and like me. What a powerful, mighty God we serve. We have a promise-keeping God who does exactly what he has promised to do. And because of the work of Christ, because that is true, we can have peace with God as Romans Chapter 5, verse 1 says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a great Savior, do we not? We rejoice in the resurrection of Christ. The proof that the promise of God is sure. We have a guarantee because of what Christ did. His death his burial, and his resurrection. Let us go to him in prayer now. Father, thank you so much for the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for this passage, Lord, as this, the argument of Paul as it unfolds. We see the beauty of the cross of Christ, the beauty of the promise-keeping of God. Lord, I do pray that we would rejoice in the resurrection of Christ and what it represents for us, that That we don't have to wonder if our salvation is sure. We don't have to wonder if if when we believe we were actually saved or not. But we can have confidence. We can have surety because you are the promise-keeping God. What you have said, you will do. You kept your promise to Abraham who believed in faith. And you keep your promise to your children here today who all likewise believe praise you we thank you we pray this in christ's name amen as we close in a final song this morning rejoicing in the savior that we do have